Um, my name's Darren Ray. I'm the CEO of Fifth Step. And today I'm joined by David and Jamie. Jamie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about uh, SQ? Absolutely. Thanks, Darren. So, uh, yeah, good good afternoon, evening or morning, depending on where you're, you're uh, hearing us from. Um, just to do on SQ, so we've been trading for around 33 years. Uh, we've been helping our clients to source uh, various resources, uh, typically around implementing and managing the change in initiatives they've required. Uh, and this has been driven um, typically uh, by new and amended regulations during that 33 year period. Um, from the Data Protection Act, uh, all the way through to RDR, uh, Basel, Dodd-Frank Act, Fat Card Cast and so on, more recently, we've been uh, effective solutions for uh, MIFID 2 and obviously now into GDPR. Um, if you started to identify the, the, the kind of scope of GDPR uh, and for you need assistance, then um, certainly around your business and process analysis, uh, or indeed require someone to work under your control to manage the whole program from start to finish, then typically SQ is in a position to probably support and help you. That's great. Thanks very much, Jamie. And um, David, you join us as well uh, from SQ. So um, what are you seeing um, in the market at the moment? You know, what sort of questions are you hearing from, uh, uh, from people? What sort of attitudes are people taking to GDPR at the moment? Good evening, morning and afternoon, everybody. <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting, actually, because probably about last September time, some clients really got engaged and started coming to us with business analysis vacancies because they were starting to ramp up. And... What we've found more recently is now some clients are only just waking up to it and they are completely unknown. So it's kind of like rabbits in a headlight scenario. So I think anything that they can glean from this presentation is really going to be able to help them if they're starting from pure basics moving forwards. Great stuff. Well, that's certainly the aim uh, today to, uh, uh, to help people cover all the bases, no matter whether they're in a smaller organisation just starting or indeed a more mature organisation or larger organisation and further down the, uh, down the track. Okay, let's move on then. So on the right-hand side um, of your window at the moment, uh, you, should have, um, you should have something that shows the um, uh, questions in the, in the GoToWebinar application. Please do submit questions as we go along. Um, this is a, a GDPR Q&A session, so we've got a host of questions that people have asked um, both David and Jamie. Uh, to bring along, but do please add your questions to the list, okay? We very much want to be answering your questions as well. Okay, as for the rest of the housekeeping, um, this webinar will be recorded, so no need to be quick on the on the print screen key or anything like that. Um, you will be able to get a copy of the full webinar as it appears now um, with the slides and everything, and you can get that both as a pod podcast and as a uh, video on YouTube as well. So let's get into it. Let's start talking about uh, what GDPR is. Some headlines about GDPR, first of all. So contrary to some belief in um, some quarters, um, GDPR applies to all organisations, irrespective of where they are geographically located, so long as they're processing EU resident personal data. Now, you'll notice there that I said EU residents, and I stress that word because there are still organisations who are being told, and by being told by people who should know better and organisations who should know better, that it's all about EU citizens. This has nothing to do with citizenship, 
Okay, I really want to stress that it's a real bugbear of mine that people are still being misinformed about this. And you know, how do you prove citizenship when someone comes to your website that you know where they're coming from? Um, you know, you know whether they're coming from within Europe. Okay, from the address they give you, or indeed other more technical ways. So do make sure that you're, if you're running the GDPR program, or if you're heavily involved in a GDPR program, then make sure that your your approach to this is correct, and it's based around EU residence, not around citizenship. Another one that's a little bit of a surprise to people. Um, I remember having a conversation probably about two weeks after the um, UK referendum on whether we should stay in the EU. And um, a senior person within a, a relatively large company was saying, oh, oh you must be very disappointed about uh, uh, the referendum. And I was, well, what do you mean? He said, well, um, the GDPR work you've been doing, obviously companies aren't going to need to do that anymore. Well, guess what? The UK government has committed um, us all to being uh, and remaining GDPR compliant. Um, in fact, there's a new data protection bill that's making its way through um, Parliament at the moment, and that will mean that we will um, remain uh, completely in adherence with GDPR, so we'll have equivalency with GDPR. That has to be granted after we leave the EU, but immediately uh, we will be, and you must adhere to GDPR if you're based in the UK, uh, UK. So you need to be getting ready. Don't think Brexit is your get out of jail free card. Unfortunately, it's very much not. The fines. Um, many organisations will tell you that this is the biggest threat and the biggest problem and the biggest part of uh, GDPR. That's generally not the case. Um, you know, the, your purpose in implementing and adhering to GDPR regulations should be that you're avoiding fines. So don't get caught up in getting worried about fines. Get caught up in getting the process right so that you don't have to worry about the fines. Um, the fines are large though, 20 million euros or 4% of uh, annual global revenue, whichever's the higher. So if you're a smaller organization, the maximum that you'd be fined would be 20 million euros. If you're a Google or a Facebook, you're looking at 4% of your annual global revenue. Think about those numbers for a moment. And GDPR will be enforced from May 25th, uh, 2018. Um, some people, again, uh, seem to be under the misbelief that uh, uh, oh, it's okay, there's going to be a lot of time uh, left over. Um, it will be enforced from May 25th, um, but the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK has said that it will be a soft landing. Okay. Now, what that means is if you are demonstrating that you are compliant with GDPR or that you are working your way to compliance, okay, then they will be softer on you. If there's no evidence of you taking any notice of GDPR and you have a data breach you know, shortly after enforcement comes in, then I think they're going to be a great deal harder on you. I put together this uh, very simplistic um, flow chart to demonstrate um, the approach uh, or to answer some of the immediate questions that people have about when they should be compliant with GDPR and should they be uh, compliant. And this is of more interest, I guess, to people who are uh, working in international companies or perhaps are um, you know, dialing in from uh, other countries outside of the EU at the moment. So I'll run through it very, very quickly, but essentially all of these diamonds, if you're answering um, yes to any of these diamonds, okay, you're going to be 
um, probably going to need to be uh, compliant with GDPR. So if you're based in the EU, yes, you're going to need to be compliant. If you have staff or people based in the EU, you're probably going to need to be compliant. If you provide services to EU residents, but you're based outside of the EU, you're going to have to be compliant. If you process EU personal data, and we'll get onto what the definition of that is in a moment, but if you process EU personal data, guess what? You're going to have to be um, compliant. And if you plan to do any of these things in the future, well, guess what? Same answer, you're probably going to have to be compliant. And if you answer no to all of those, okay, then you need to keep a watching brief because if any of that changes, then guess what? You're going to have to be compliant. I promised I'd uh, define personal data for you. And here's some of the other terms that are popular terms within uh, European data protection. Many of these haven't changed since the current regulation, which is the Data Protection Act. Um, the Data Protection Act has been in place um, since 1998, but um, whilst it holds many of the same regulations and some, many of the same requirements as the, um, the GDPR, um, many organisations have fallen out of compliance with uh, the, the Data Protection Act, and that means that there are larger programmes to become compliant with the GDPR than otherwise might, may have been the case. So let's talk about what personal data is. Now, personal data is any information that can identify an individual. Okay, I leave that hanging just for a second so that you can comprehend that. It's not just about name and address, although obviously those are aspects of personal information, but a bank account number, a passport number, a credit card number, an IP address, any of those pieces of information can actually identify an individual. Okay, and therefore they are all considered to be personal information. So it's not the, the obvious things that you might think of, of you know, name, address, email address, those kind of things. It goes far broader than that. Okay, so make sure when you're um, considering your approach to GDPR and implementing all those changes that you're considering all those factors. Even things like employee ID. So an employee ID, again, identifies an individual. So it's included in personal information. Sensitive personal information goes a little bit further. Now these are the things, I, I tend to think of the first bunch of these to be the things that people have historically been persecuted for. So things like um, political opinions, um, ethnic origin, uh, religious beliefs, uh, trade union membership, those kind of things, uh, mental health, um, um, records and things like that, those kind of things where people have perhaps been persecuted for that information previously, okay, those form the first part of um, personal um, sensitive information. With the second part being things about um, the sex life or the criminal history um, or any of that kind of data around um, the, um, the data subject. And newly included or added to the GDPR is biometric and genetic information. Obviously, there's been a lot of changes since 1998. So if you're capturing biometric information for, uh, I don't know, things like um, access to a building, if you've got a particularly, uh, particularly secure building and you're using fingerprints or something like that, then obviously that's biometric information that's considered to be um, sensitive personal information. And David, Jamie, does that all make sense to you guys?
guys in terms of what you're seeing and your understanding? Because you guys, whilst you're talking to lots of people about GDPR, you're relative layman in terms of you know implementing. You know, obviously um, layman in terms of implementing it. Does that does that those definitions make sense to you? Absolutely right. Yeah. So you just got to define because presumably sensitive data. There's going to be uh, much more tighter controls over that. So you've got to really be adhering to any form of GDPR regulations on it. That's right. Absolutely right. And um, there's a lot more pressure and a lot more expectation that you're going to be keeping that data a lot safer. There's a lot more pressure. While GDPR doesn't stipulate it, but a lot more pressure for you to explain why you're not encrypting that data if indeed you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the purpose. And this is a, there's only a short definition here, but the purpose or purposes is why you're collecting the data. And you have to define these up front. Okay, so you can't be laissez-faire about this and say, oh, well, we told the, the people when we collected their data that we were just going to um, uh, use it for providing a service. But what the hell, let's market to them. Okay, you can't do that anymore. Um, in fact, not since 1998 at least, but um, certainly you don't want to be doing it uh, once GDPR comes live. So make sure you understand the purpose um, the purpose of collecting the data. And if there's multiple purposes, if you want to market, uh, you know, use this data to market other services to these people, ask for their permission, okay? Or in the, in the words of the GDPR or in the terminology of the GDPR, seek their consent, okay? And consent, being the next definition, definition is a freely given and specific and informed indication of choice. Okay, so it's very, very specific. Okay, the um, the data subject has to be giving consent to their um, to use their data. Now there are some exceptions to that. Um, so, for example, for you guys, Jamie and David, uh, if someone emails their CV to you guys and it contains obviously their phone number, their email address, their name, their age. You know, it contains information that most people would consider to be personal information. But they've emailed it through to you um, without you requesting it, or indeed without SQ having the opportunity to say, "Here's our terms and conditions," or "Here's what we'll be using the data for." Okay. Well, in those situations, obviously, the data subject had given consent because they've taken the action to send you their data. Best practice you should be emailing those guys back afterwards to say this is what we're going to use the data for and then if they object they can obviously email you back and say well i didn't realize you were going to use it to find me a job no uh, definitely not um please take me off your off your system right now and they can ask to be uh, deleted the last uh, couple of definitions i'll run through those quickly um data controller it's a very important definition the data controller is the organization or person who defines the purpose or purposes for collecting the data. And they also define how the data is going to be processed as well. Okay, it's a really important uh, concept. Now you can have multiple data controllers in complex situations, but typically in most scenarios, and as I say, there are exceptions, in most scenarios, what you'll get is a situation where there's a single data controller and then potentially a number of data processors. Okay, and a data processor is anyone outside of the data controller's uh, control, so they're not an employee of the data controller who processes the data on the behalf of the data controller. Yeah, I hope that will make sense to everyone. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, yeah. great. So I'm keeping them uh, keeping them honest here and making sure that they're uh, they're paying attention as we go through the rights of the data subject. So let's talk about these. Um, 
all of these rights, um, each of you listening, if you're based in the EU, um, you all have these rights. Okay, so I'm going to run through what they are and what they mean. And um, from this, you can infer, obviously, what they mean to your business. Okay, so starting at the top of the 12 o'clock position there, the right to be informed. A data subject has the right to be informed about what their data is going to be used for, um, how it's going to be used, and who's going to be processing it. Um, and they have to, as I said earlier on, in many cases, they'll have to give active consent to the use of that data. Okay, so that means that if you have someone sign up on a website or if you're selling products on a website or something like that, whenever you're collecting personal data, you have to present them with purpose, the data privacy statement, before they provide the data. Okay, and it's important um, that you're collecting it and, uh, sorry, you're showing them that before uh, they provide the data. The right of access. So any data subject can ask for a copy of their personal data, and they can uh, they have to be provided that personal data in a human readable form, okay? And it has to be decoded. So if, for example, you are um, if you represent um, a bank, for example, and branch seventeen happens to be Sheffield branch, well, guess what? When the data subject asks for um, a subject access request, so a copy of their data, you must decode branch 17 into Sheffield branch. Okay, so those kind of things need to be decoded. It needs to be understood by people. Third right is the right to rectification. So the data subject has the right to ask for their data to be corrected. So if they've received mail from you where they're calling you um, you know, Mr. instead of uh, Miss or Mrs. or something like that, they have the right to ask for that to be corrected. Now, that's a rather simple example. Obviously, there can be far more serious examples, perhaps if your bank is confusing you with a John Smith or a Jane Smith who lives next door, for example. Um, you know, if they're uh, confusing the two of you, you may have a perfectly good credit record, whereas your neighbour, perhaps not so much. And the reason that you didn't get the loan that you applied for was perhaps because they were mixing up to um, the, the two Smiths. Um, so uh, a data subject has a right to rectification. This will very often follow a subject access request. So once the data subject has seen all the data that you've, that you've collected about them and that you're processing, um, they, um, they may come back and say, actually, this is wrong. You're confusing me with my neighbor or something like that. And they have the right for their, for their data to be corrected. So you obviously have to have the processes in place to correct the data, you have to have the processes in place um, for the data subjects to be able to exert their rights. The fourth right is the right to erasure. Now, I always like to make the joke uh, with uh, people of, a, of, uh, of the right age that it also is the right to other 80s uh, bands as well. But the right to erasure, more seriously, is actually the right to have their data deleted. So. Um, a data subject can ask for their data to be deleted at any point. Now that may sound tricky. If you're providing a service to these people and they come along and say, well, I want my data deleted. Um, you do have the right to say, well, we can't delete your data whilst we're providing in service, or we have to keep this data for other legal purposes, such as anti-money laundering, for example, uh, anti-money laundering legislation or uh, com the Companies Act where you have to keep uh, information about people you've employed or um, uh, 
taxation uh, requirements where you have to keep data for seven years about employees, for, as an example. All of those um, examples uh, would override the rights of uh, the individual um, as part of um, you know, the rights granted to the individual uh, under the GDPR. The data subject also has the right to restrict process. That's right number five. Um, so the right to restrict processing is typically where the data subject has realized that some of their data is incorrect and they've asked for it to be corrected. And in the meantime, they're asking uh, that the, the, the data not be processed or not be processed for a particular purpose, perhaps. So again, your systems have to be able to cope with that. Now this next right, I think is an absolute doozy. I'm really looking forward to seeing some um, organizations react to this. And I think um, some of the insurance um, comparison uh, websites are gonna be loving this right, okay? Because this is the right to data portability. And what it means is that a data subject has the right to request an extract of their personal data in machine readable form. So this is very similar to the right that to the uh, right of the uh, the right of access um, uh, that we spoke about earlier on, but this time it's in machine readable form. Now, machine readable means it's going to be in a CSV file or an XML file, or if in your particular industry there's a standard application that all your competitors use and you use, then it may well be that format is the industry standard for extracting and providing personal data. Okay, that's going to mean big changes to many organisations. So have a think about how your organisation needs to react to that. The right to object. Um, this is very similar to the right to restrict processing, but um, this is um, a little bit more serious um, and a little bit more long term, where the data subject has the right to object to the processing of their, their data. Essentially, they are um, removing consent for their data to be processed. Now again, it may be for a specific purpose, and one of those specific purposes, as mentioned directly, is marketing. So you have the right to, re uh, to object to your de details being used for marketing. And the last right um, is the right to manual processing. Now, depending on the size of your organization, you may be questioning um, what that means exactly, but imagine that you're a bank, um, and in processing loan applications or mortgage applications, um, a lot of the processing these days is done algorithmically. So it's done by computers deciding um, you know, whether this person has a good enough credit rating and whether the amount is uh, affordable to them, et cetera, et cetera. So in those kind of cases, the data subject has the right to manual processing. Now, that means that a person then reviews that case, goes through, and then actually makes a decision as to whether, um, you know, in the example I've given, whether the loan's gonna be given or the mortgage granted, those kind of things. Yeah. So many of these rights are in place now. Some of them aren't. The right to data portability is an example, one that isn't, and the right to manual processing isn't. But many of these rights are in place now. So if you guys are thinking, oh my goodness, how are we gonna to react to this? Um, just think about, um, getting it in place as quickly as possible because uh, data subjects could ask you for the, uh, to exercise some of these rights right now. And just a little reminder, please do ask any questions as we go along. Um, uh, we um, have got time coming up um, shortly for you uh, uh, for us to answer any of your questions. 
Of course, David and Jamie have got uh, questions themselves that will answer, but we very much want uh, to hear your questions and to be able to uh, provide answers to uh, challenges that you guys may well be facing right now. So the next point here is um, the need for a data protection officer. Now, the GDPR makes it clear that, um, that in many cases, organisations will need a data protection officer. At the very least, it's going to be someone who is accountable for uh, the protection of personal and sensitive data. Okay, so um, at the very least, it's going to be a named individual. Now, if you're processing um, more than 5,000 records, or if you're processing sensitive personal data, to David's point from earlier on, you know, one of the things about sensitive personal data is it's treated a little bit, a little bit differently. Okay, so if you're processing sensitive personal data, or if you're processing more than 5,000 records of personal data, chances are you're going to need to have a data protection officer. Now, data protection officer. Um, is responsible for all of those things that you can see in the graphic there, the data retention adherence, the data categorization, data protection issues, etc. And they're responsible for all of those. And this can either be an employee within your organization or it can be provided as a service. And uh, FISTA actually offers a data protection officer service. So let's talk about other areas that have data protection because if, if you're an international organization, um, there are many different types of data privacy around the world. And these are just some of the countries that have uh, data protection regulation. This isn't a definitive list by any stretch of the imagination, but I called these ones out because these are organized or these are countries rather that um, are often spoken about in the news um, in terms of um, you know, very varying different aspects or attitudes to, work, to the way that they collect or process data. I'm going to start with Argentina, and that one's not an obvious one, but Argentina is actually one of those um, countries that has equivalency with the Data Protection Act at the moment. So actually sending and shipping data backwards and forwards to Argentina is actually relatively easy. Um, it may not be a country that everyone on the, on the webinar is um, is um, desperately sending data uh, backwards and forwards, but if you do need to do so, um, that is um, that is possible, uh, and that's not the case with all of the countries that are listed on here. And let's talk about Canada, for example. Canada has a number of different data protection laws, uh, including their anti-spam regulation. So, um, you know, that requires. Um, a recognition of personal data, that consent be obtained, um, and that you have breach notification processes in place. So some of the things that we've spoken about, about the GDPR apply there. The US has a plethora of different um, requirements and they're typically split out by industry sector. So medical data, for example, is treated uh, differently to financial data and things like that. But if you're sending data backwards and forwards to the, to the US at the moment, you need to be being very careful because um, strictly speaking, the US is not, well, it's obviously not within the extended economic area, the EEA, uh, which is a normal boundary point uh, for data, and it doesn't have equivalency, and it's not recognized by the EU as having the same uh, regulatory framework or requirements. So you need to have some additional things in place. China, um, China is very often in the news about, um, you know, being an authoritarian state and things like that, uh, and they do have relatively good data privacy uh, requirements and not quite as strong as the EU ones and they tend to be um, fractured so they're in a number of different um, laws and some of the laws 
um, depending on how you read it, could be um, uh, construed to be com uh, conflicting. So there are some challenges, but if you're, if you're operating in China or if you need to operate in China, you're thinking about operating in China, then obviously come and have a chat with Fifth Step and we'll um, point you in the right direction or, or alternatively speak to um, your legal team or if you've got in-house house counsel, they may be able to help you with that too. Uh, Russia has recently changed its data protection requirements and it now has um, geosensitivity, which means that the data can't leave Russia. So if, for example, SQ was um, deciding that they were going to set up in Russia and that they were going to run the same uh, kind of service in Russia, but that they were going to do the processing of um, CVs here in the UK, that would actually be illegal under Russian law. Okay, um, so you'd need to have a presence in Russia, and the, um, the CVs, the Russian CVs, would only be processed in Russia. That may not be too much of a limitation because I don't know about you guys. Do either of you guys speak Russian? Not the moment. Not, not, not the moment. Quite a time. No. no. Okay, ready to learn though. Starting <laughs> <laughs> the revolution, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then finally on this slide, um, Australia. Um, Australia has uh, data protection requirements, and you can see um, some of the details. Uh, there in terms of uh, some of the things that they want, but they don't have geosensitivity included. I mentioned Argentina is one of the countries that provided adequate protection. Um, here's some of the others. Some of these might be surprising. Um, now I've included the United States there, um, having said earlier on that the United States wasn't included. Um, so am I just uh, having some kind of brain freeze moment? Well, no, it's actually only with the EU US Privacy Shield in place. Um, that the US is, um, is considered to be an adequate, uh, to have adequate protection. Now, unfortunately, for those of you who work for uh, financial services firms, the EU US Privacy Shield is not um, appropriate or allowed for financial services firms. So, um, um, you know, the US giveth and they taketh away in the same, uh, the same breath. Okay, I'm going to touch on why GDPR might become uh, the standard very quickly and then we're, we're moving towards a point where we're going to um, start answering questions. So just a quick reminder again to ask any questions you might have. Um, okay, so GDPR, um, it's a really good framework and a really good way um, of uh, implementing data protection. Now, I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I've been involved with um, GDPR for some, um, for some years. In fact, I've been talking about it um, you know, publicly for at least the last two years. But I don't just say it because of my familiarity. I say it because it actually addresses what customers think the protection is that they have already in many cases. Most people believe that companies are taking far better care of their data than in some cases they are. Let's think about um, Equifax or any one of the recent breaches, but let's think about Equifax, for example. You know, Equifax led, um, the Equifax breach led to the data of almost every adult in the US having their personal data compromised. And what's more, Equifax didn't report the fact for six months. So this data was out there being used, abused, whatever, for six months before people actually knew that there'd been a breach. You know, that's criminal. And I say that in all senses of the word, it's criminal under the European law. Um, so we'll see what, um, what ultimately happens on that. But there are, um, there are, um, there is rather litigation underway in the US at the moment to, um, uh, to prosecute uh, Equifax. 
Um, so the GDPR is very um, client-centric um, and customer-centric. So um, that's one of the reasons why it may become so. But it's also a good framework to build on. So if you're in an international organization and you need to implement GDPR, uh, but you also need to adhere to other countries' regulation, um, think about that. Um, have help, uh, fifth step come and help you. We can implement the controls once so that they can be used and reused in other countries. Okay, we're coming to question time. And uh, um, please do uh, send any additional questions. We've got some questions here that we're going to answer um, for you, but please do feel free to start uh, typing away. Um, the questions uh, box should be on the right hand side um, of your screen, or roughly, you may have moved it around, but it should be on the right hand side of your screen. So uh, please just um, key those questions in, and um, we'll, uh, we'll answer those in just a moment. As we get there and as you're typing your uh, your questions in, um, I will make a shameless plug. Um, I wrote uh, one of the first books on uh, GDPR. Um, uh, it's still available, it's still available, obviously it's still available on uh, on Amazon, and it's available as both uh, an ebook and as a paperback. Um, so visit your local Amazon store, go to amazon.co.uk or amazon.com, whichever one's right for you, and uh, search for the little book of GDPR and all the details are there. Um, and you'll learn some of the things that we've spoken about today, but it also goes into some uh, more detail than is possible in, a, in the 30 minutes that we've been running so far. So, Jamie and David. Questions from the clients asked by Jamie and David, it says here. That was the note I was supposed to sure. uh, remove. But, so, <laughs> that's, uh, that's uh, showing the audience uh, behind the scenes uh, a little bit here. So, and... Audience, please do, as I say, do ask um, some more questions. We've got um, some questions uh, there, but do feel free to ask any questions at all. And if you're worried, oh, I won't ask that question, that seems a little bit stupid. Um, believe me, there's no stupid questions when it comes to GDPR. There's a lot of confusion about it. So if you feel your question is too stupid, please um, ask it anyway. And we promise to laugh only after the webinar. <laughs> so, David, you've got uh, you've got a couple of questions there that you've been. Uh... I guess I guess first question is if you outsource mm. where your data is kept, so whether you be your back office of a bank or if you're a recruitment company, if that's supported by a third party software outside, yeah. or if you outsource your IT systems, yeah, who's responsible for that data being compliant? David, that's a really good question. Okay. Um, this has changed from the Data Protection Act to GDPR. So under the Data Protection Act, it's possible to have um, you know, shared responsibility. And you can imagine a scenario where a big bank employs um, a, a quite large company that outsources some aspects to a smaller company, who outsource something to a smaller company you know, um, down the chain. Um, in those kind of scenarios, the Data Protection Act allowed um, uh, everyone to have, um, you know, have their own responsibilities, if you like. Under the GDPR, the responsibility stays with the data controller. So if you're the big bank and you're outsourcing, you have to do your, um, your due diligence mm -hmm. yeah, to make sure that the providers are, uh, are appropriate for what you're asking them to do. Uh, next question is slightly away from Kiel from that, but you've talked about consent for, say, if somebody sends in the CV to SQ, mm. given consent. Uh, but for legacy data, mm. so if a bank holds legacy data or if an employer holds legacy data about its employees, yeah. um, 
where is an appropriate use? Because I don't think we've really touched on legitimate interest just yet, but where yeah. is the appropriate use for legitimate interest versus consent in those scenarios? That's a really good question. Now, if you speak, uh, if you consult a lawyer um, on this, and I've been to a number of events um, where um, lawyers have been speaking about this, their advice is um, avoid scenarios where you need to consent or minimize the areas where you need consent. Okay, so. Um, for employee data, for example, okay, you won't necessarily need consent for that because it's part of the uh, the contract of employment. Okay, so you won't necessarily need consent at that um, at that point. Okay, if you're a bank though and you're processing data now, um, at least in the UK uh, or at least in Europe, okay, since 1998, the banks have all had um, you know the the tick boxes, you know, please include me on your mailing list and those kind of things. Okay, so they should be um, treating the data in the right way already. Okay, but there are organisations out there. I was I presented um, to a group of marketeers um, last week, and they had real big questions, real big concerns. All of a sudden, they weren't going to be able to use their mailing list um, because they didn't have evidence that they had consent for this. Now, there are some ways around this. You can obviously send an email to the, the person and say, we are, you know, in order to comply with GDPR, can you, you know, go to this website and uh, you know, register your consent or indeed opt out? Okay, the one caution that I would give you there, okay, was something experienced by Honda and, um, and Flybee, okay? So Honda and Flybee both took that approach. The one vital thing that they both forgot about they didn't take any notice of the people who had previously said, never email me. So they mailed all these people saying, can you please change your marketing preferences in accordance with the GDPR? And they mailed thousands of people who had previously said, never email me again, no matter what. Okay, so those people um, got quite upset and uh, complained and the Information Commissioner's Office agreed with their complaint and fined both Honda and Flybee. Okay. Now, under the Data Protection Act, those fines are nowhere near as large as they are under uh, GDPR. So I don't think either Flybee or um, Honda are going out of business as a, as a result of those fines. But nevertheless, it's important that you make sure that you have at least enough consent to email these people. Don't go uh, mailing them when they've previously told you, never talk to me again. Um, let's, um, let's answer this question here from... Um, Medulla, um, let me uh, just call that question up. Okay, so in the absence of valid consent from the individual, can the data processor still allow the individual to use the services provided by the data processor, or should the individual um, be, uh, be stopped using the service? Okay, that's a good um, question, Medulla. I guess it's a sort of extension to the marketing question that we were um, asking just there. And that's not the case. You don't have to stop providing a service just because you haven't necessarily got active consent right now. There is a an implied consent for uh, for that legacy um, that legacy data. Now you do have to be careful with that. Okay, that you're not then providing new services or using the data for something that you haven't got consent for. But if someone signed up for a service, they have provided consent. They may not have uh, ticked the opt-in box. Uh, that you may now present to them, but they, uh, but you wouldn't have to stop using that service. Okay, that kind of leads quite nicely into another question that we had: is how, how long can that legacy data reasonably be, be kept on file? 
that's a really good question. Um, these are really good questions, David. Um, um, so the GDPR itself doesn't stipulate a, a data retention length. Now you might think that's a real omission, but actually the uses of personal data are so wide and varied that if the GDPR says you can only keep this personal data for a year, um, I know many insurance companies, for example, who would be absolutely panicking about that because they have long tail data that they need to um, that they need to keep that data for analysis and things like that. But they can't keep it for any longer than is reasonable. Now you use the word reasonable, and that's exactly the term. So it has to be reasonable. And it has to be defined. Now you may define within SQ, for example, that you're going to keep CVs for 20 years. Okay. Now, if you define that as reasonable, and that may be the case, and that may be okay, okay, it may be okay right up until the point that someone complains that you've been mailing them about jobs and you haven't sent or had any communication with them uh, for 20 years, okay? Now, I'm sure SQ is far too reputable of an organization to be doing that, obviously, uh, obviously, but, um, but um, if you define that period to be 20 years, it has to be a defensible position. It has to be what's reasonable. Now, where you're actually out looking for work for people, they may consider that to be reasonable, okay? But in other circumstances, that may not necessarily be the case. So, the organization itself has to define what a reasonable period of time is, okay? And there may be other laws that get involved, like I said earlier, on anti-money laundering, taxation, company law, all those things, okay? But the company itself has to define what is reasonable, okay? And they have to be able to defend that against a complaint or against a, an audit or an investigation by the Data Protection Authority. Great, thank you. Um, Sonia um, has asked a question here. Um, following on from your response to, the, to my first question, um, what is a sufficient guarantee that the processor must provide to the controller that they are compliant? How far can the controller go to see all the, all the processes? That's, um, that's an excellent question, Sonia. Um, now, what you have to have in place is a contractual agreement that the data processor is going to remain um, compliant with the GDPR, and that's doubly important if they're outside of the EEA, so outside of um, Europe, okay? Um, so you have to have that contractual agreement, okay? And in your agreement with them, okay, you have to have the right to be able to do inspections, um, to ask for evidence that they are complying, and to ensure that they comply with the rights of the data subjects within a time frame that allows you to comply with them. So if you've only got one month to uh, respond to a subject access request, then you need the data processor to do that, to, um, to participate in that process. They have to be able to, to do that well before the one month uh, limit. You don't want to be getting the information three hours before it has to be sent out, I would suggest. Jamie? Cool, so um, we've had a question in from Julie, who I think is on the webinar today, uh, and she's asked, what should a company do if they detect a breach? Oh, brilliant, data breaches. Data breaches are really scary things when they occur. I've been involved in um, in scenarios of data breaches, and they can be really um, they can be really exciting um, times. Very nerve wracking, and you're trying to find out what's gone wrong and where it's gone wrong and why. So, if you um, if you believe a data breach has occurred, now a data breach can be can occur in a number of different ways. I mean, the popular press would have you believe that it's always hackers, but guess what? Sometimes people leaving information on a train on a 
an encrypted USB stick or on a laptop that they leave on a train or something like that, where the hard disk isn't encrypted. So I use the term encrypted there um, quite importantly. So if the data is all encrypted, okay, and, and um, and it can't be decrypted, so it's strong enough, the encryption is strong enough, is reasonably, you know, it's considered to be strong enough, okay, then you may not have actually suffered a data breach, even though this data is theoretically in the wild, it's not actually because it can't be decrypted, so it's just, you know, garbled uh, nonsense, okay, but if you detect a data breach, first and foremost, you need to make sure it's not ongoing, so if you're being hacked at the moment, the first and foremost thing you need to do is obviously stop um, you know, to turn the tap off, you need to stop the, the, the hack getting worse, okay? So if you discover that, you need to, um, to switch off. If the data breach is historic, so you were hacked last week and you've just discovered that, then you need to put together a number of, uh, of pieces of information. You need to understand what the extent of the data breach is, how many personal data records have been um, lost or you know, were involved in the breach. You need to understand what the impact is on the data subject. So if it's just a data subject's email address, well, sure, that may mean they're gonna get some more spam, okay? Don't get me wrong, I hate spam as much as the rest of us, but it's not the end of the world. If it's an Equifax scale data breach where it's all of their personal information, their, you know, their social security details, their bank account details, their, um, their passport details perhaps, their dates of birth, their medical history, all of that kind of information, then the, the consequences to the data subjects is quite large, okay? Now, you need to gather all of that information, okay, and some more, and you need to also know what you've done so far in order to either stop the breach and to stop it reoccurring, okay? And you have 72 hours, so those three days, 72 hours, um, in order to um, notify the Data Protection Authority, okay? So in the UK, that's the Information Commissioner's Office. Yeah, and I just as a reminder, Equifax took six months um, to notify anybody. So, um, so you need to not be the Equifax in the room. No, no pressure there then, Julie, on that one. <laughs> Thank you for that, that question. Um, we've had another one coming from Colin. Um, he's saying, um, does the data subject need to be made aware of the breach? I don't know if you just cover that off there, but just to acknowledge Colin's question. Um, best practice, I would say. Yes, they probably do, but it depends again on the nature of the uh, of the breach. Um, if it's an Equifax type breach, yes, um, yeah, they need to take action. Um, if it's a breach of email um, address, probably not. Okay, you may decide that that's uh, that's um, that's not the case, um, um, and it will also depend uh, depend on the scale of the breach as well. If there's three records um, you know gone missing, then you may speak to the the data subjects. Um, the scale may not be large enough to do anything else other than that. Okay. Um, uh, one question Dave and I had, and we, we were talking about this recently, um, is, you know, in, in the case of SQ, perhaps, but companies generally, do, do we, need, do we need, really need to have written policies or, or if we were to put in some form of training for staff and, and have sound operations in place, would that be enough? No, you need both. Um, you need to have written policies because um, unlike the Data Protection Act, uh, the data protection authorities, uh, so the ICI Information Commissioner's Office here in, uh, in the UK, um, they can come in now at any time and ask you to evidence the fact that you are uh, compliant. So um, you need to be able to evidence your compliance um, uh, and defend your compliance, not just 
and say, oh, well, we've given some training and everything's okay. So the way that you'll be judged um, as to be compliant is, are you adhering to your policies and are those policies in turn uh, GDPR compliant and what they're asking you to do uh, and what they're suggesting that you're going to do? So, um, so definitely have policies and processes and procedures in place. If you don't have those in place already, um, then um, in some um, uh, examples, you'll speak to um, your legal team, but that is something, again, that FISTA can help you with. Fantastic, thank you. Um, we've got another uh, question here from um, Sonia. Um, Sonia says, or asks, uh, in a uh, in a business-to-business -business situation, if an individual provides their business card with their name, office phone number, uh, work email, etc., um, is any additional requirements, are there any additional requirements under GDPR? Um, is consent required and how long uh, can the information be kept? This is a good question um, and one that um, marketeers are obviously very keen to understand the ramifications of. So um, no additional consent is required, okay, so long as you are using those details in a business setting, okay? So um, if I give my business card to, um, you know, David and Jamie today, okay, I'm giving them my contact details in the context of having just done a webinar with them, um, you know, around about GDPR. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm asking them to sign me up to their mailing list uh, to receive notifications of GDPR opportunities. Um, later, guys, we'll talk about that one. Uh, yeah. So uh, that doesn't mean that I'm signing up for that. And that's that should be um, implied and understood by the conversation that's taking place. Now, that sounds a little bit less formal than the rest of the GDPR, but what the GDPR is um, is there to do is to enforce the mass protection of, um, of data and not to necessarily change all of the common practices that are in place today. Now, the last part of your question is interesting, um, Sonia, and I've actually, um, having attended a, um, a law firm's uh, GDPR presentation recently. I've actually slightly altered my opinion um, on this um, as to how long you can actually keep the data. Now, historically, I would have said, well, it's been given in the business con context. As long as you continue to use it in that business context um, and the details remain valid, then most people will be com comfortable with you keeping that, that information. If, however, you don't speak to that person for five years and then you bring them up out of the blue and they don't know who you are, you know, if you think that's going to be the case, then you've probably kept that information a little bit too long. Um, but of course, um, you know, a business card lasts forever. A business card doesn't, you know, um, self-destruct after, you know, five years or something like that. So theoretically, you can keep hold of that data for a long time. I guess where the boundary and the line gets crossed is where, and, you know, many people will do this, where you perhaps go to a, a business event, perhaps a networking event, you pick up uh, a number of business cards, and then those business cards in turn get entered onto a CRM system. And that person then gets um, you know, subscribed to your newsletter, for example. Now, they, then that newsletter may be fair use, and you know that may be all part of the context, but that's the area where you need to be probably be a little bit more careful going forward about um, entering it into a CRN system because that card was given to you as an individual, um, not necessarily to the company um, as a whole. So have a think about those. As for how long you keep the data, that's really going to be down to what your particular organisation thinks is reasonable. But um, if you haven't had contact with that, with that individual for you know, perhaps a couple of years, the chances are if you phoned them up, if they wouldn't recognise who you were, 
um, you know, or recognise your name, um, then you know perhaps um, perhaps you've kept that data too long. But there is no uh, specific requirement under the GDPR to delete that kind of data after you know after two years or something. Um, Mikael is um, asked a question here. Does regular personal data? Um, so does regular personal data, um, general data exchanged only? Um, sorry, I'm just trying to understand. I'm, sorry, Miguel, I'm trying to understand. Um, I'm trying to parse uh, both sides of this uh, question at the same time. That's perhaps uh, my fault. Okay, so general data is exchanged only. Okay, um, there's a request uh, to be um, to be contacted in large print format. Um, okay, so. Okay, okay, I see what you're saying. So there's a request for a large print format, and from that you are able to infer, potentially infer, um, that there's a medical issue. Um, does that become personal sensitive information? It's a good question, um, and I would say that it does. Um, it doesn't give you a full in, you know, detail of what any medical condition is, but it does give you insight into um, the medical condition of this, um, of this individual. So, um, information such as um, large print or um, assisted audio um, preferred, you know, is a preferred means of contact or something like that. Um, those kind of, um, that kind of information, um, even though it's perhaps only a tick box or, um, you know, a yes, no field on a database, probably does infer um, um, sensitive personal information. And Christine, we've got... Um, question from you. Um, what about data you keep in regards of, of service users that have learning uh, disabilities not able to give a meaningful consent? Okay, um, I, that's a really good question. I think that probably comes to um, a similar situation as you have with, um, as with children. Okay, so in the case of um, children, and I'll answer it from this perspective, and I promise I'll come back to your question directly, uh, Christine. Um, with children, um, children under certainly under 13 years of age in the UK, and this can be up to 16 uh, years of age, um, you need uh, double consent. So you need uh, parental consent too, okay? Uh, so you need a parent or guardian. My suggestion to you, Christine, would be exactly the same scenario um, in in the, in the situation you're talking about with uh, someone with learning dis disabilities who um, arguably may not be able to give an informed and, uh, and well-informed consent. Um, my recommendation there would be that, um, that you're dealing with um, uh, a, a caregiver or someone who is um, responsible for that individual as a, as a at, least, at the very least a secondary consent. Okay, that may be a judgment call um, in terms of um, uh, how disabled they are in terms of their uh, their learning. Um, you know, if they are able or may be uh, able, as judged by um, you know, judged under law, to be actually able to give consent. Um, you'll know that situation better, but I would su suggest you may need to seek dual consent. Okay, Jamie. Any other questions from your um, uh, from your audience? We've got um, just a couple of minutes left, so um. yeah, <laughs> we'll quick, get a quick one in then. So we've had a question saying, um, just trying to read it here. So what if someone someone doesn't consent? Yes. 
Uh, can a company contact them to ask why? Uh, okay, it depends what they're not consenting to. So if they're consenting, not consenting to ever being contacted, well, guess what? No, you can't. Okay, if they're not consenting to marketing, okay, then again, no, you can't contact them uh, to say why. You know, why didn't you opt into marketing? Okay, um, so my my suggestion there is really no, you can't. Um, that may be. Um, perceived as badgering the data subjects and trying to um, intimidate them almost into um, in, you know, into consenting to marketing or something else. So um, my advice around consent though is to make it as atomic, as granular as possible without um, you know, giving someone a page full of tick boxes, of consent tick boxes. So where you're looking for consent around marketing, for example, and I use marketing as an example because it is the one area um, that or the one business function that is mentioned specifically by the GDPR. Okay, marketing is actually pulled out individually. So if you're asking for consent for marketing, for example, if you just ask that one question, can we send you information about our company? Okay, then many people will say no. Okay, if you say, can we send you an occasional text message with information or offers? Okay. People may say yes to that because they're okay with that, or they may hate text messages and never want you to contact them that way. If you give them another choice of saying, can we send you our newsletter by email? Or can we send you offers and vouchers by email? Or can we contact you about um, how well our service is, you know, how well we're meeting your needs in our service by email or by telephone or whatever? But break them down into the areas so that you're not just giving the data subject a yes, no, um, you know, I consent, I don't consent to, to marketing in this example. Okay, where it's around the provision of a service or a specific service, um, then um, there may not be a, an opt-in to that. You know, we're providing this service, and therefore we have to have your, you know, your personal information in order to provide that service. It tends to be auxiliary um, uh, consent that you're that you're seeking for those kind of things. So try to make it atomic and get down into the granularity of it. Okay, one last question we're going to answer because at 4 p.m. here in London, um, in this particular office, there's going to be a fire alarm test and I'm not going to expose you guys to that because it's loud and, and obnoxious. So we're going to finish within the next minute or so, but I'm going to ask this, answer this one last question by Tessa. How would customers complain if they felt our company was in breach? Is there an industry standard process? Um, there's not an industry standard process, but in your data privacy notification, you have to provide details of your data uh, protection officer. Okay, if the data subject doesn't feel that they're getting satisfaction from you or your process, okay, if you're not answering the process in time, you have one month um, to answer um, such complaints. Um, if you're not getting, if they're not getting satisfaction, then they can complain to the Information Commissioner's Office. Fantastic. Guys, thank you very much, everyone on the phone. Thank you, David and Jamie, um, for your input. It's been fantastic to have um, the input from your customers and obviously from um, those on the phone. Um, as I said, there will be a recording of this made available on our website um, in a few days' time. So if any of the, if any of your colleagues couldn't make it, then please do re redirect them to fistep.com in a couple of days, and they'll be able to download it from there. In the meantime, thanks very much. Mm -hmm.